reading this week is called The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. This is one of the best books on the Reformation period of church history that I know of. Uh, and we're coming up on the time of year where we think about the Reformation on October 31st. Uh, sometimes we call it Reformation Day. It's when Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the door uh, in Wittenberg. Anyway, this book talks about some of the things that we're going to be talking about in this class over the next few weeks. Uh, and it's in the bookstall. It is an excellent book. I got some more copies of these uh, for the bookstall because this book is just so good. This book is so good. This is a book that back in the day before we had kids, Emily and I read this book out loud to each other on road trips. It is that gripping and interesting. Uh, so it's a very good book, The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. I'll quote it later today as we go along. I'll start our class uh, by reading from Psalm 77, verses 11 and 12. It says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. As we get into a, a portion of our class where we're going to be talking about church history, we spent a lot of time thinking theologically and biblically about the Bible. Now we're going to be thinking through church history. And we want to remember that God didn't stop working when the New Testament was done being written. God has been working for the last, well, ever since forever, right? I mean, God created everything and sustains everything by the word of his power. He's been working through church history and is still working today. And so we want to remember those works of God also. Richard Baxter, who's a pastor uh, in the 1600s, he said, The writing of church history is the duty of all ages, because God's works are to be known as well as his word. He that knoweth not what state the church and world is in, and hath been in, in former ages, and what God hath been doing in the world, and how error and sin have been resisting him and with what success success doth want much to the completing of his knowledge. And so we want to keep the, the works of the Lord in mind as we think through what God has done in history to bring us his word. Let's pray together and then we'll begin. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have always been working in this world uh, to glorify yourself by the salvation of sinners. And we know that faith comes by hearing your word. So we thank you for all that you've done to get your word to us this morning even. I pray that you would refresh us and encourage us as we consider your works and help us to praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's precisely the trajectory that we see in Acts. And providentially, we'll be in the book of Acts this morning, in Acts 18, uh, in our morning service. And this is what God does, right? As you read through the book of Acts, you see God's Spirit comes upon the disciples, the apostles, in Jerusalem. Jesus says you have to stay here in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you. And then the gospel spreads out from Jerusalem to Samaria, to the Gentiles in Asia, to the Roman centurion in Acts 10, to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then down into Ethiopia in Africa, and by the end of the letter, all the way to Rome itself. Uh, and you'll remember in the book of Romans uh, that Paul is writing to the church in Rome because he wants them to help him get to Spain, which is even further off the charts. 
Right, so for the first few centuries, Christianity, you'll remember, was not in favor in the Roman Empire. Christians were persecuted, burned, thrown to the lions, killed in gladiator rings, and more. Christians were publicly maligned and slandered. It was a, a not uncommon slander of the early church was that the early church were cannibals. People who didn't understand Christianity called Christians cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. Uh, because in the Lord's Supper, Christians say this, you know, Jesus taught us to say, this is my body, this is my blood. And the pagans who didn't understand what was going on would accuse Christians of things like that, among other things. Christians were also accused of being idolaters for worshiping Christ. As we mentioned last week, uh, all that changed in 313 AD with the Edict of Milan, uh, when Constantine legalized Christianity. But of course, God didn't need permission to spread the gospel or the church. Right? By the time Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, it was already all over the Roman Empire. Um, so you can see in this picture uh, that this is around 325 AD, and all those, the dark red shaded areas, the, the darker the red, the more prominent Christianity was in the Roman Empire. And praise God, you can see in this map by 325 AD that, the, that Christianity in the church had a strong presence in Spain. Praise God for that. Christianity was down in Africa and in Asia, uh, and it had spread uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And Christianity was not only legalized in the Roman Empire, there were other um, nations or countries or empires, we might say, who also adopted Christianity as the official religion. And in those countries, the Bible was being translated. The Bible was being translated wherever Christianity was going. Church historian uh, Donald Fairbairn says in Eastern Africa and Western Asia, there was a vast level of Bible translation in the early Christian centuries. By the 5th century, the Bible was translated into Syriac, into the African dialects of Coptic and Ge'ets, which was spoken in Ethiopia, and into Armenian and Georgian. In fact, at the end of the 4th century, a brilliant Armenian linguist named Mesrop Mashtots was the first person ever to devise an alphabet, Armenian, explicitly for the purpose of Bible translation. And that was at the end of the 4th century, so that's in the 300s. He developed an alphabet so that he could translate the Bible into Armenian. So there's, there's lots of, there's Christianity is widespread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond, and it's, the Bible is being translated where it's going. So for our purposes this morning, and this is just a zooming in on Italy and Africa, uh, you can see Rome is in that picture, and also Hippo and Carthage, which is where Augustine ministered. There were church councils in these places. This picture, again, this is from the Museum of the Bible. Um, in the early church, the first several hundred years, the Bible had been translated into about 13 languages. And then by the time of the Reformation, the Bible was only in about 35 languages, but it was being translated. We'll talk more about the history of translation. That's a timeline that we'll talk more about later. What, for our purposes, you know, because we're thinking in this class, obviously, about how we got our Bible. We're thinking about how we got the English Bible. And so the next step in that timeline is for us to consider the Latin translations of the Bible. Because there is a direct line from the Latin translations of the Bible to our English translations. And that'll be obvious by the time that we're done uh, this morning. 
So, uh, first, we need to think about the, we're going to talk about the Vulgate in just a minute, but there are Latin translations before the Vulgate. The first translations of Scripture into Latin were being done in the late 100s into the 200s. So this is very, very early on, right? The New Testament was written from about the 50s to about 90 AD. And so, uh, very soon after that, you have the Bible being translated into Latin. And we call those, those versions the Old Latin and in the early churches that were using this old Latin, they would have had what, what we know today of as interlinear Bible translations, right? So obviously the New Testament was written in Greek, and so they had the Greek text, and then in between the lines they would have the Latin text because they were speaking Latin. And so they would read the Greek, and then they would read the Latin in their public church services. The first Latin translations were, were not high in quality, uh, many of them lacked just readability, good translation technique that, that sometimes were painfully literal um, and in the Greek word order, which made it hard to understand in Latin, and some were unreliable. Augustine, who's writing in uh, the late 300s or early 400s, he quipped, the Latin translators are all out of sorts, for in the early days of the faith, everyone who happened to gain possession of a greek manuscript and thought he had any facility in both languages however slight that might have been attempted to make a translation so augustine's saying these latin translations anybody that had a greek and knew thought they knew greek and latin tried to make a translation and so it it made for a very difficult state of affairs for latin translations so the earliest latin translations they weren't great for a few different reasons and the church knew it they knew they had this challenge uh, the Latin-speaking church knew that this was a challenge for them. So, in 383 AD, Pope Damasus sought out the best Christian scholar of the day to make a quality Latin translation of the Bible, and that scholar's name is Jerome. Jerome had received a first-class education in grammar and rhetoric. He was a native Latin speaker, and he learned Greek in his 20s, and later on he would learn Hebrew. And that was not common at the time. In fact, Jerome was one of the only church fathers who knew Hebrew. Even people like Augustine and Origen, they did not know Hebrew. Um, so, uh, at first, when Jerome, Jerome was asked to make a new Latin translation, he did not want to do it. Because he knew that no matter how good of a job he did, that he was going to be criticized for his new translation. Here's what he said. He said, the labor is one of love, the labor of working on a new translation, but at the same time it is both perilous and presumptuous. For in judging others, and he's talking about judging the other Latin translations, for in judging others, I must be content to be judged by all. Is there anyone learned or unlearned who, when he takes the volume in his hands and perceives that what he reads does not suit his settled tastes, will not break out immediately into violent language and call me a forger? and profane person for having the audacity to add anything to the ancient books or to make any changes or corrections in them. So he was initially resistant to the idea of making a new Latin translation because he knew he was going to be criticized. But eventually he did agree to do it, first of all, because the Pope was asking him, and it's hard to say no to the Pope. And second, because the contemporary Latin translations were in a sorry state of affairs. And again, everybody knew that. It, it was hard for them to work in the Latin and to have confidence in what they had. So Jerome agreed. And Jerome dedicated his life to this translation that we know as the Vulgate. And 
Um, I'll just take a moment to explain also that the word vulgate uh, comes from the word vulgar. And today, when we talk about things being vulgar, that's not a good word, right? Like, that's, you don't want to be vulgar, okay? Um, but the word vulgar just means common. That's what the word vulgar means. And so vulgate means the, the common language. Uh, and for Jerome and for the Christian church at that time, uh, in uh, the Roman Empire, they were for the most part speaking Latin. And so they wanted the Bible in their language. Anyway, that's just an explanation of why it's called the Vulgate. It means common language. Um, so Jerome dedicated his life to this. He worked hard for decades on this project, and he wasn't always making a fresh translation straight from the original text, right? Jerome knew, everybody knew, that there were Latin translations out there, and so he got copies of those Latin translations and would often work from those translations, compare them with the Greek and Hebrew texts that he had, and work from there. Sometimes he was able to move rapidly. Uh, so, for instance, he produced a Latin translation of the Gospels in about a year. Um, but when it came to the Old Testament, that took longer. He was compelled to go back to the Hebrew texts rather than to just settle for the Greek translations of the Old Testament, uh, which, again, is called the Septuagint. And most of the Latin translations are based on the Greek. So, again, Jerome's trying to go back to the original language of the Old Testament. And that was Hebrew, and that took a lot of work for him because not a lot of people knew Hebrew. Jerome didn't work alone. Uh, it's unclear how much help he had, but he had other helpers and scholars and translators, uh, kind of like a team we might think of, helping him to translate into the Vulgate. And uh, Jerome's translation was, in fact, criticized. Um, Augustine, we have a letter from Augustine uh, who tells this story of uh, a church in North Africa in modern-day Tripoli. They were reading Jerome's new translation of Jonah um, from the Vulgate. And in Jerome's translation, while it was being read publicly in the church, the congregation heard that Jonah took shelter from the sun under some ivy. And when the church heard the word ivy, the congregation started yelling out, gourd, gourd, because they, they knew in their Latin versions, they heard that it wasn't ivy that he was sitting under, but a gourd. So they all started shouting, it's a gourd, it's a gourd. And so the reader had to kind of change it on the fly so that people didn't uh, protest. So it was not always well received. It was criticized early on. And not like other translators after him, Jerome had to defend his translation from critics. But that criticism didn't last long because, as you probably know, the Vulgate became the standard translation of the Bible that the church used for hundreds of years, about a millennium. Um, and we'll talk more about what happens. There's an interesting history of the Vulgate and what happens around the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. We'll talk more about that later. But early on, it was criticized, as Jerome expected. Um, but after uh, a little while, it didn't take too long, it became well known that this is a good, solid translation of the Bible. So, uh, it would become the standard version for the church in the Latin-speaking world and even endure beyond Latin-speaking, the Latin-speaking world. 
So uh, I'll give some lessons about what do we learn from the Vulgate, and then I'll pause for any questions or comments you might have. So the story of the Vulgate teaches us the importance of a quality translation. Remember that the, the impetus for even having the Vulgate in the first place was because of the, the shoddy Latin translations that existed at the time. In this case, the translations were either too literalistic to be read readable or too different from one another to be clearly understood. So, and God's people rightly desire to have God's word in a reliable and readable format. And so that's the impetus behind the Vulgate. And it teaches us the importance of a vernacular translation. I've already mentioned that Vulgate means common. And so the people in the Latin-speaking world wanted a quality Bible translation in their language. And that is often throughout church history, throughout our own English-speaking history, and in other parts of the world, that's the, the impulse behind Bible translation, right, is to have the Bible in the language of God's people. The story of the Vulgate reminds us that new translations are commonly criticized. Jerome was one of the first, but certainly not the last, to be criticized for his Bible translation. In fact, as we'll see throughout the history of the English Bible, it is common for new translators to have to defend their work. We'll talk about this later, but if you read the prologue for the King James Bible, the prologue is mostly defending the work because they knew that they were going to be criticized just like Jerome was criticized. And Wycliffe, who we're going to talk about in a minute, he was criticized, and Tyndale was criticized. They're all criticized. The last thing to note about the Vulgate is the impact it had on Western civilization. Bruce Metzger says this, he says it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of the influence exerted by the Latin versions of the Bible, and particularly by Jerome's Latin Vulgate. The extent of its penetration into all areas of Western culture is almost beyond calculation. Um, and as we'll see, the Vulgate would have a major influence on future Bible translations, including the first translation of the English Bible into English which is what the second half of the class is about. We'll talk about that in a moment. So I'll pause here uh, for any questions that you might have about the Vulgate. I don't think I have any more slides about it. Nope, but I have some other slides for the next part. Any questions, comments so far about the Vulgate? All right, I'm going to keep going because next we're going to talk about English, which is great because that's the language we speak. Um, so we're going to talk about the, the first translation of the Bible into English. And this is where we're going to be introduced to John Wycliffe, who I'm sure you've heard his name. First, I want to give you a bit of the, the historical context that leads up to Wycliffe because we're jumping uh, about a thousand years down church history. And uh, if you, uh, I'll show that timeline maybe later, but... Um, really, there's only a couple of times in church history where there's a boom in Bible translation. Uh, one is uh, for about a couple hundred years, kind of leading up to the King James, the first hundred or two hundred years before that, there's lots of Bible translations being done in English. And then the last hundred years, there's been a lot of Bible translations into English. From the time of Jerome and the Vulgate uh, in the early 400s to the time of John Wycliffe, about a thousand years later, not much happens, in, especially in English. There's a little bit that happens, and I'll talk to you about that in a second. So prior to Wycliffe, you know, there's some partial translations of the Bible into English. 
What you are looking at on the screen is uh, an example of that. Uh, this is a photo from the Museum of the Bible, uh, which I like to talk about. It'd be great if you've never been there to go visit. What you have here is, this is the, the Latin Vulgate, is the, the larger text that you're looking at. And in between the lines, I know it's really tiny, but even if it were larger, you wouldn't be able to read it. Um, <laughs> in between the lines, what you have there are old English words. Uh, and that was how the first English translations happened. And if you remember a second ago, that's how the first Latin translations happened too. Uh, so what tends to happen is you take a Bible in a language that, that is known, and you put the language you're aiming for in between the lines, like right next to it. Um, and if you've ever seen an inter interlinear Bible, it's the same concept. So the first translations of the Bible into English were from like the 800s to the 1000s, and they're the Latin Vulgate with some English written in between the lines. But it's not a complete Bible, and it's not a proper translation either. Um, we call them glosses, um, which I have up on the screen there. And, and then we also have some parts of scripture kind of paraphrased into English poetry, into old English poetry. But again, that's just parts of scripture, maybe some psalms or things like that. And it's worth noting, I want to point this out because uh, this is something that I learned along the way. So translating the Bible into English or into plenty of other languages is not illegal uh, for most of history. There's a chunk of time where it is illegal, and we'll talk about that. But when these kind of interlinears are being made, it's not illegal to have the Bible in English. It's perfectly fine. In fact, King Alfred, who I'm sure you've heard of, in the 800s, so he's the king of England, he says this, he says, the law was first composed in the Hebrew language, and afterwards, when the Greeks learned it, they translated it into all their own language, and also all the other books. And afterwards, the Romans, in the same way, when they had learned them, translated them all through wise interpreters into their own language. Right there, that's a summary of everything we've been talking about. He's talking about how the law went from Hebrew to Greek, Septuagint, then from that to Latin, which is the Vulgate. Okay, so picking back up, he says, and also all other Christian peoples translated some part of them into their own language. Therefore, it seems better to me that we also translate certain books, which are most needful for all people to know into that language that we can all understand. So that's Alfred, King Alfred, talking in the 800s about translating the Bible into English. So in sum, prior to Wycliffe, translating the Bible into English, it was not illegal, but it was not common and they didn't have the entire Bible in their language. We also need to understand something else, kind of the political or religious scene in the 1300s in England uh, is the tense relationship that England had with the Roman Catholic Church. One dynamic of medieval life that's kind of hard for us to connect to as modern Americans is the transcendent nature of the church over and above the countries of the world. Uh, and by church, when I use that term here, I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church of the time. England existed as a country, as did France, as did Spain, and so on, but the Roman Catholic Church was in these countries and over these countries. And this was due in part to what was called uh, the Donation of Constantine, which was a letter supposedly written by Constantine when he moved the capital from Rome to Istanbul, and he renamed it. What did Constantine rename Istanbul? after himself, Constantinople. That's what people did. Uh, people still do that, I guess. Um, name cities after themselves. When he left uh, Rome to go to Istanbul, Constantinople, Constantine allegedly wrote a letter to the Pope saying, you can have the western half of the Roman Empire. I'll worry about the eastern half, you can have the west. 
And so Michael Reeves in that book, The Unquenchable Flame, he says that that letter was the basis on which the medieval popes had asserted their political authority over Europe. Popes were superior to kings. So if we're going to understand Wycliffe and all that's about to happen in church history, we need to understand that that dynamic is at play, okay, that the popes are higher than the kings. And so there were tensions, just like there are today, between nations and nations, but there were also tensions between nations and the Roman Catholic Church. And from 1309 to 1377, the papacy, where is the papacy normally residing at? Where are they normally? The popes. They're in Rome, and in, in, in the Vatican, right? The little, tiny little, I guess it's a country, the Vatican, inside Rome. Anyway, I don't fully understand that. But anyway, from 1309 to 1377, the papacy, the pope, was a French pope. And he's like, I don't want to live in Rome. I like it in France. And so he set up shop in, um, I don't know if there's any French speakers that can help me pronounce, I can't do French vowels. But they were in Avignon, uh, A-V-I-G-N-O-N. Um, so the pope was in France, from 1309 to 1377. This is the time of Wycliffe's life. And England didn't like France. And so the French king was thrilled. He's like, hey, the Pope's in France. Everybody else, especially the English, were like, we don't like this. We don't like that the Pope's in France. Um, and so this created all other kinds of tensions. And there's more. In addition to the French entanglements, the papacy from 1378, from 1415, went through what's called the Great Schism, when you have two to three popes at the same time. And they didn't like each other, and they all naturally excommunicated each other. So the papacy in the church, in the time of Wycliffe, leading up to the Reformation, is embarrassing and embarrassed. They are in complete disarray. And we need to realize that going in. And it turned out around the same time, somebody studied that Donation of Constantine letter, and it turned out to be a fake. And so then the king started wondering, hey, is the pope really in charge? And everybody started asking, well, a lot of people started asking questions about the papacy and about the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, all that leads us up to John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was born in the 1320s in Yorkshire in England. He was ordained as a priest and became a scholar and professor at Oxford University. Oxford's super old, so is Cambridge. He was a well-known and controversial theologian, and he was an advisor to the English monarchy. Again, we need to understand there's a close connection between the political rulers and the theologians of the day. Again, we don't think of that kind of connection today, but back then, the advisors to the king were theologians, and so John Wycliffe was one of the advisors to the king. And Wycliffe was critical of the papacy and the clergy, and he had plenty of ammunition, which I've already talked about. You've got the French connection, the Great Schism. But he especially argued this, that unrighteous leaders were disqualified from their office. Now that might, well, maybe that does or doesn't shock you these days, that, that somebody who's unrighteous would be disqualified from office. But um, at the time, he was making, that was kind of a shocking argument for him to be making. The papacy was rife with well-known public immorality. And I'm talking like murder, like popes were poisoning their cardinals kind of thing. Uh, sexual immorality, public sexual immorality, bribery, and all sorts of other stuff. This well-known stuff. So Wycliffe and his followers, you know, so lots of people wanted change, but Wycliffe and his followers didn't just want better popes. They argued that there should not be a pope. 
And so that's a step further than what a lot of people at the time would have wanted. They would have, a lot of people might have said, we need, yeah, we need a better pope. That guy's not good. But Wycliffe and his followers called the Lollards, they came along and they said, no, we shouldn't have a pope. And in 1378, Wycliffe published a book called On the Authority of the Pope, wherein he argued that the Pope's authority was not established by Scripture and that the authority of Christian life and doctrine is ultimately in Scripture. So Scripture was the authority to which Wycliffe was appealing. And Scripture was the authority, he said, for Christian faith and life. Therefore, Wycliffe argued, Scripture should be in the language of the people. Because if you just think about it, if at the time, there was no English Bible. It's in Latin. So just imagine if you're the, the average Christian at the time, and you know there's two or three popes. You know the popes in France, and you don't like the French. and You know all these problems, the immorality. What do you do? You, you can't even read the Bible. When you go to church, it's in Latin. You don't understand a thing that's being said. Um, so Wycliffe is arguing that the Bible should be in the language of the people because the Bible is the authority for the Christian life. Metzger says of Wycliffe, quote, a strong believer in the Bible is the word of God addressed to every person. Wycliffe felt the need to provide the scriptures in a form that the ordinary reader could use. As you can imagine, Wycliffe was not well received. Uh, he was deemed a heretic twice over. So Pope Gregory XI declared 18 of Wycliffe's opinions heretical in 1377, and in 1382, Wycliffe and his ideas and followers were declared heretics by a council in England. And by this time, the late 1300s, Wycliffe was older, most of his work was done by this point, and he would die peacefully. He was not a martyr. Uh, he would die peacefully um, on December 31st, 1384. Wycliffe inspired and aided the first translation of the Bible into English, yet Wycliffe himself didn't personally do the translating work. So this is kind of a misnomer. We talk about the Wycliffe Bible. Wycliffe himself, it's, we do not know that he did any of that work, but he helped lead and coordinate that work and collaborate for it. And Wycliffe's followers are called the Lollards. Um, Lollard is a word that they use for mumblers because the translators, they would go around mumbling scripture, repeating scripture, memorizing it. Uh, so they were called Lollards. Um, they produced the first English Bible translation in 1382. That's just two years before Wycliffe died. Um, and that version was very literal uh, and almost unreadable in places. And so a second edition was made in the 1390s. Wycliffe didn't see that. Um, he was already dead. Um, but that was more readable in English. These translators had lots of challenges, as you can imagine, right? I mean, one, they're doing this all by hand. Um, they're also not popular. They're going to face increasing pressure and persecution from authorities. One of the other challenges they had is that they didn't have any Hebrew or Greek texts. Uh, today, like in my office, I mean, it's very easy. You could go on Amazon. You can get a Hebrew or Greek copy of the Bible very easily. They couldn't even get them. Uh, the only Bible they had was... Latin. The only Bible they had was the Latin Vulgate. And so the, the Wycliffe Bible is a translation from the Vulgate. Or in other words, it's a translation of a translation. Um, it's not ideal for lots of reasons. Um, in 1415, at the Council of Constance, Wycliffe's Bible was banned and burned. So it wasn't until 1415 that officially it was decided this is illegal. 
Um, today, we have some 250 copies or fragments of the Wycliffeite Bible, which is amazing. And it speaks to the proliferation of this Bible and of how much it was treasured to have the Bible in English because it was illegal to have it. Uh, and we'll hear more about this when we get to Tyndale. Uh, the copies we have are, are usually copies that are beautiful. Uh, they're made on animal skin that we call vellum. Took, you had to kill like 200 sheep to make uh, a full copy of the Bible. Um, so sheep are still being sacrificed in a way um, back then. Anyway, um, but those were usually for the wealthy, uh, and they're, they're beautiful copies. I'll show you a, co a picture in, in just a moment. <clears throat> uh, what do we learn from the Wycliffe Bible? Gratitude to have the Bible in our language. Um, John and I were talking about this this week, and, you know, I, I was mentioning with John, you know, trying to imagine what it would have been like to be a Christian then, and to to not have the Bible in English, uh, and how sad or discouraging that would be. And, and John said, you know, well, a lot of times, or, you know, I think one of us said, like, we don't, they didn't know what they didn't have, or they didn't know what they had. And John said, a lot of times, we, well, how did you say it? Like, yeah, I don't know. He was just talking about how sometimes we take for granted, basically, what we do have. Something to that effect, you know? And so we could be grateful that we have the Bible in English. I mean, praise God that we have the Bible in English. We're also reminded of the natural connection between the authority of Scripture, right? So here's where our theology comes in. There's a natural connection between the authority of Scripture and the need for Scripture to be in the language of the people, is a natural connection. That's consistent, again, with the impulse behind all Bible translations, whether we're talking about the Septuagint, the Vulgate, or Wycliffe, or any other language that's out there. And Wycliffe was specifically making this point. This was Wycliffe's point. The Bible's the authority, not popes. And because the Bible's the authority, the English people need an English Bible. We can also appreciate, as we'll talk about later in the class, the benefit of going back to the Greek and Hebrew texts. Because again, the challenge that they faced was that they were only working with the Latin. And even for the Latin Vulgate, no two copies of the Latin Vulgate completely agreed with each other. In different regions of the Roman Empire, they're speaking slightly different dialects of Latin, and they're revising it as they go. And so there's slight differences even between the Latin texts. Um, so we can appreciate uh, the value that we have today of being able to go back to those Hebrew and Greek texts, and we'll talk about how that came to be, because again, Wycliffe and his team didn't have that kind of access. <clears throat> um, so, what I want to do now, actually, is I want to show you, um, so this is a picture of the Wycliffeite, or the Wycliffe, New Testament, and what you have here, this is a close-up picture, and I, I hope you guys can see this, of the Wycliffe New Testament. Um, if you can see this, if you can see the text, does anybody want to make a guess as to what you're looking at, what part of Scripture? Andy? It's not Genesis, but you're close. I think I heard somebody get it. Yeah, it's John 1.1. Now, Wycliffe was writing in Middle English, okay? So the first slide that I showed you where it was the interlinear with the Latin and then the English, that was Old English. Uh, we would have been even more helpless there. Um, but this is, this is Middle English, so it's, this is not the English that we speak. 
This is not only the font, not only is the font different, but the rules are different, right? The letters are different, the grammar is different, the punctuation is different. So to help us out a little bit, here's the, without the font problem, here's the, the letters and the, the, the grammar that's being used. So in Middle English, the Y, I understand, I'm not an expert in Middle English, but my understanding is that the Y at the beginning of a word was represented the TH sound. So what you have there is in the beginning was the word. Then you'll notice if you look in the text, it's in the second line there, there's a little symbol, and I think that's the symbol for and. Uh, so then you have and, the word was at God. So there's a couple things you can notice there when you get to the word was at God. One is that their prepositions are different. They're using the word at in a way we don't use. Uh, we would say that the word was with God. And you'll also notice their capitalization rules are different. We capitalized God. Uh, now, it's not because they were being disrespectful. They're just working with different rules. And it continues on. It says, and God was the word. Now, in our English, you know that word order differently. You know the word order as the word was God. Uh, and so that word order is following the Latin Vulgate, which follows the Greek. That's, and you probably know that the Greek word order is a different word order. So the Latin followed the Greek, and that English follows the Latin following the Greek. In our translations, we say the word was God. Then it says, uh, this was in the beginning at God. And you see those slashes. That's a grammatical thing that I assume is the equivalent of a period or maybe a semicolon. And then it says all, and then that next word is things, were made by him. And you can just notice all sorts of spelling differences. And then this particular picture ends with and with. Uh, and then it says, and by him was not anything made that was made. Um, so it goes on. But I just wanted to show you that. Uh, to show you, this is, uh, this is a copy of what uh, the Wycliffe translators were making. I mean, and, and praise God for that. This is, this is the work they were doing in the 1300s. This is all done by hand. Um, and it's beautiful. Again, this was probably... Uh, a wealthy person commissioned this to be made. Uh, this is not something that maybe an average Christian could get a hold of. Uh, as you get the printing press, average Christians could start getting a hold of the English Bibles, which is great, and we'll talk more about that next week. So I'll pause here, um, and for any comments, thoughts, questions uh, that you want to ask. Yes, Scott. So the, the, the shortest answer I can give to that is that officially there, uh, there was not another church going in, the, in Western Europe, right? So there's something else going on in Eastern Europe. You've got the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is not under the authority of the Western Pope. They've got their own thing going over there. There's different things happening in Africa and places like that. But one thing we need to understand about 
this time period is that a lot of things that we know today to be staples of Roman Catholicism were not staples back then necessarily. There were certainly some people, but like there's, there's dissension among the ranks about, uh, about the papacy. I mean, so Wycliffe would have been a Roman Catholic. Like he, he, there was nothing else. Um, but he's criticizing the papacy. Uh, Luther, obviously, before he leaves, I mean, he's a Roman Catholic. So, so you've got dissension in the ranks. It, and several things that we take for granted, uh, like transubstantiation, I'm pretty sure that that wasn't official or clear until like 1215. The Latin Vulgate at the time of Wycliffe is not the official Bible of the church. There just was no other Bible. It's not until the 1500s in the Council of Trent when you've got the reformers doing their thing, and the Catholic Church is, we've got to respond to this. It's only in the 1500s that the Catholic Church says the Vulgate is the official authorized version of that the church is allowed to use. So the easiest way to answer that is in Western Europe, like there, there wasn't an alternative um, unless it's just very small and underground. And so people like the Lollards and Wycliffe, I mean, they were getting caught, deemed heretics, and burned. That's what happened when you dissented. Um, and the reformers are called the reformers, this is getting a little bit down the line, because they, they weren't trying in their own minds, self-consciously, they were trying to reform the church and call the church back to biblical Christianity. And eventually they were, you know, kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church and started their own things. And a lot of that's wrapped up in politics that is a different world from what we know. Um, and a lot of that happened in Germany, Switzerland, things like that. England eventually, the Anglican Church, we'll talk more about that later. But yeah, uh, does that kind of help answer that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, Bob. Yep. Yeah, I think it's the early 1400s. I think it's around 1425, something like that. So, so Wycliffe is in the late 1300s. 1382, 84 is when his translations come out, and they're all by hand. And so then Gutenberg fires up his printing press. Yeah, so the first printed English Bible is Tyndale. Wycliffe's translation didn't actually get printed, which is just kind of a technicality, but it wasn't actually printed until the 1700s, and it was just kind of as a curiosity kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, Dave. Yeah, you have that, uh, again, Switzerland and Germany and England are like easy examples of that. You know, Henry VIII had lots of reasons to break with Rome. We'll talk about that. Anything else before we conclude? Yes, Zach. Yeah, so um, some of it, if I understand the question correctly, and some of it, I, I may not know all the best ways to answer this question. So questions about how the Latin influenced the Wycliffe translation. I mean, the most obvious answer to that is that's all they had, right? So, I mean, everything that's in the Latin Vulgate is going to wind up in Wycliffe. Other examples would be that, you know, the Apocrypha is in the Vulgate. So the Apocrypha is in Wycliffe's Bible. Um, the word order, 
um, and things like that would be ways that it influenced, that the Vulgate influenced Wycliffe. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let me uh, pray and conclude, then we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you so much that we have your word uh, for us in our language. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to treasure it. And we're grateful. We just express gratitude to you this morning that we have your word uh, and that we can understand it. Thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.